0: I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guest to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they love or cherish, but they must also pick one thing that they loathe, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in episode 118 of My Time Capsule is the stand-up comedian Angela Barnes, who, following her degree at Sussex University, ran comedy nights in Brighton, where, finally, in 2008, she decided to have a go herself. She did a 12-week workshop on stand-up comedy, the same course that our guest Sean Walsh attended, actually, and then began her stage career, performing at Latitude and the Edinburgh Festival, and winning BBC Radio 2's new comedy award. She became a regular on the comedy circuit, and started writing the scripts for the hosts of the News Quiz. After appearing on the topical shows Stand Up for the Week and The Now show, she became host of News Jack on Radio 4 Extra, and then finally got a chance to say the words she'd written herself as the host of the News Quiz. Angela has appeared on Dave's As Yet Untitled and is a regular panellist on the topical comedy show Mock the Week with Hugh Dennis and Dara O'Brien. She was named the hardest working stand-up in 2018, having driven 30,000 miles to 91 different venues where she performed over 100 shows. She also makes her own show, You Can't Take It With You, for BBC Radio 4 and the less-than-serious history podcast We Are History with John O'Farrell. So you can imagine... Imagine how grateful I was when Angela agreed to spare some of her rather rare free time to tell me the five things she'd like to put in her time capsule. And this is what she chose. So every person I've ever known is called Angela. They never get called Angela.
2: Never. Very rarely. I'm Barnsy, Angie, Ange. Or you. I'll respond to anything. I'm not
0: <laughs> fussing. Okay. In that case, Kevin.
2: Yeah. <laughs> don't push it
0: (laughs) go go mad all right Angie we're going to talk about some things you want to put into a time capsule yes so should we start
2: let's start let's start I'm excited about this brilliant so number one that I want to put in the time capsule is a radio tuned to radio four (laughs) now originally I was going to say I want to put the archers in there because I'm a Lifelong fan of the Archers. I love the Archers. People don't expect that of me necessarily, but I was brought up listening to it with my mum, and I have to listen to the Archers every day. But I used to say it's like getting a 15-minute hug and then somebody pointed out that actually a 15-minute hug's a bit creepy. So maybe not that. But then I thought, actually, no, it's not just The Archers, is it? It's everything around it. It's like I listen to The Archers, but then I leave the radio on and I listen to Front Row. And then, you know, obviously I listen to the comedy before The Archers and, and I grew up listening to the news quiz. And that's how I, you know, sort of got obsessed with comedy was through Radio 4. So I thought, no, it's the whole shebang. I want Radio 4. In the time capsule because I can't imagine my life without it.
0: That's perfect. But actually, the Archers and Radio Four listening, I think, is often a thing that's inherited. Mm. You learn it from your parents. So was your mum an Archers listener, or is she?
2: Definitely, my mum. It was. It makes me think of my mum in the kitchen, sort of cooking dinner, and the Archers would mm. be on. And then I remember when I went off to university when I was eighteen, I would secretly listen because I, I used to, you know, I. I'd be like, oh, she's listening to the archers, you know, moaning about it. And then when I went off to university, because when I went to university in the sort of mid 90s, the internet hadn't quite taken off yet. And, um, you know, we didn't have mobile phones and stuff. And so it, my sort of connection to home was to listen to the archers every day. But I used to listen to it in secret. Like there's no way I could tell my fellow students that I was sneaking off to listen to The Archers at seven o'clock every night. But I would. I'd sit in my little room in halls with my little radio and listen to The Archers. And it was just my little connection to home. Yeah, you know? lovely. And I remember I then, I ha- when I was about, I was in my 20s and I had this boyfriend Who it turned out also listened to The Archers. And we were like, oh, it's our guilty secret. Like, we've got this, it's not just me. I thought I was the only person my age who listened to it. And then, of course, now with podcasts and the internet and everything else, you're like, oh my God, everyone, there's a whole world of fandom for The Archer. Mm. And I love Archers fans because they're all bonkers, like all of them. (laughs) We all love those characters we get angry with the script writers I just love the whole world of it
0: oh how have you coped with lockdown archers
2: well I'm you know only four days a week ah. so it's it's during during the last year lockdown when they did the monologues I know a lot of people moaned and complained that it wasn't the same and you're like well of course it's not the same but it's you know blitz spirit people come yeah. on and I think the actors did their best mm-hmm. I mean I know because I had to host a series of the news quiz in uh, lockdown you know on zoom last year yeah and we were getting people going oh i don't don't like the, what they've done with the news quiz. It's like, well, it's not our choice <laughs> to do this. You know, it wasn't an artistic choice to do it without an audience on the internet. You know, I I would much rather be in the radio theatre than have been sat doing it in my living room. You know, but that was what we were dealing with. And I think actually the script writers, the actors and everything all sort of pulled together. And the fact they managed to put anything out at all, I think is a testament to how good they are. So, um, yeah, I but I can't wait for Friday night episodes to come back because... Mm. I keep forgetting, and I turn the radio on at seven o'clock on a Friday, and mm,
0: I know. It's, not it's still weird, isn't it? <laughs> mm. I have to say, there was a period of my life where suddenly I became interesting to a group of women of a certain age, <laughs> and they would basically ask me. They would say, mm. "Do the voice," <laughs> and it's because I played a character in The Archers. Who did you play in The Archers? You were I was Paul, Lillian's lover.
2: Lillian's Paul, you were... Paul. Oh my goodness, no, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> you were Lillian's Paul who died? Yeah. Well wow, wow, that's just... But you don't look like no, him. No, I know, no, I'm so sorry Mike. to spoil it. <laughs> I know, he's a big
0: swarthy man, isn't he?
2: That is the thing with the arches. I hate... Like I, I, quite often now get to like I do podcasts and things about the Archers, and I quite often get to meet the actors. Mm. And I, while it's really nice to meet them, I, it's always like, but you don't look like
1: no, them.
2: you don't look like them. It's not right. They're in my head. No,
0: I know. Well, that's why people wanted me to do the voice because I didn't look anything like. Yeah, Paul would look because he was he was a builder. He was a big, strong, yeah. you know, gnarled hand man. The sort of man that some women have an idea it might be interesting to go to bed with. Yeah. And I did a lot of going to bed with Lillian. Yes. And they basically (laughs) wanted me to just go deep and quiet and just be a bit sort of rough. (laughs) (laughs)
2: idea oh that was you that's so funny
0: <laughs> it was a very strange experience i'm
2: fueling all these middle-aged women's fantasies brilliant good job if you can get it i say
0: <laughs> anyway that's it. and i have to say i had a brilliant time doing the arches. it was lovely fun and the people on it are really lovely yeah it's a complete family and uh i was sad to leave it Sunny, who plays Lillian, is just one of the most gorgeous women you'd ever meet.
2: Oh, I'm dying to meet her. We have little Twitter exchanges, me and Sunny, but one day I'll get to meet her in real life. But I just, I I really want to go. In fact, before lockdown happened, they invited me to the studio and then, of course, lockdown everything. But I will, I will get along to the studio and meet some of the actors. And Kerry Davis, one of the writers... You know, I'm forever sort of nagging him that he should write me a little, uh, just a little part. Yeah. You know, just one day. Come on, Kerry. Uh, when's
0: the Cockney girl coming in? Come on.
2: Exactly, right? Come on.
0: Bit of estuary. That's what you need. <laughs> <That's
2: right>. <laughs> <laughs> I could be one of, like, Jazza's exes, turn up. <laughs> or um, I love the character of Jazza. And now that Jazza, spoiler alert to anyone who's not caught up, but now that uh, Jazza and Tracy horribin have got together, mm. ah, best. Brilliant. Brilliant.
0: Brilliant. And hopefully that's his future secured. He's got another 30 years there. Yep. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we should expand it. I mean, what a thrill, uh, though, for you, if you are a Radio 4 fan, to then actually get on to the news quiz, but then be asked to host it. Fantastic.
2: It was a like, uh, it sounds so corny to say it was a dream come true, but I grew up listening to the news quiz with my dad. And particularly for me, the person I always talk about who really was a biggest influence on me was Linda Smith Uh. because she was also a girl from Kent and, you know, politically we're quite similar, but she was the first voice I heard on Radio 4, definitely in Radio 4 comedy, that wasn't a posh bloke Mm -hmm. really, you know, because you heard women's voices, but they tended to either be posh or if they weren't posh, they were bit parts in sitcoms. Mm. They were playing the cleaning lady or they were playing the, you know, to have a woman being herself with an accent like mine, and being clever and funny and holding her own, you go, oh, this isn't just for those other people, this is for me as well. I can do this, mm. you know. Cause I'm a firm believer in you have to see it to be it, you know.
1: <laughs> and
2: um so for Linda Smith was that sort of her and Jeremy Hardy together. Well, uh-huh. sadly I never got to work with Linda. Um but I did get to work with Jeremy mm. and it was, I couldn't believe my luck. And I remember what happened, oh, it was 10 years ago now. I won the um, it's a BBC New Comedy Award, yeah, uh, like a stand-up competition. And I did an interview for a magazine after I won it. Or it might have been when I was just in the final or something. Mm. And they said, what's your biggest comedy ambition? And I said, to be on the news quiz. <laughs> that was my biggest comedy <laughs> ambition. I was like, I just want to be on the news quiz. And um, Victoria Lloyd was producing it at the time. And she got in touch with me on Facebook, believe it or not. At this point, I didn't have an agent or anything at this point. And she said, I've read your interview. She said, would you like to come in and do a day's writing on the news quiz? You know, come write Sandy's script. I was like, what? I could not believe my luck. So yeah, I went in, I did that a few times. And then eventually they asked me to, to be on it a few years later. And then... Last year, I was lucky enough to host a series.
0: It's amazing.
2: Yeah, a really amazing. Like, I still can't quite get my head around that I did it. Um, it's wonderful
0: that the producers, that she sees that change as possible. So many people think mm. if you've got a thing, you can't really change fundamentally the style of it. Yeah. And it has for many, many years been presented by posh blokes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. and And I think there are many more opportunities now than there ever were for people who aren't... You know, posh white men. Mm-hmm. You, no offense to the posh white men, but that's all you heard on Radio Four for decades. Yeah,
0: that's why I ended up speaking like this. <laughs> yeah, I taught myself to be a posh white man.
2: Oh, say, my family—they call me the posh one. That's <laughs> worrying, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you learn to make yourself understood.
2: Well, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, so to be on Radio Four was something I never thought would be something I could do. You know, and now. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. I love it. It feels like home, Radio 4. I have a very big place in my heart for it, and I hope it survives. I really do.
0: Well, then, in that case, just for you, I shall have Sailing By playing in the background. Oh, Oh, lovely.
2: (laughs) That's the other thing. When I was a student, I used to listen to the shipping forecast to get to sleep.
0: Oh, perfect. Well, then all of Radio 4 will go into the time capsule for you. Great. Right. Angie, what's next?
2: Okay, my next one, I can actually grab and show you. Give me just a sec. Mm. I am showing you a bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Of something called Screech Rum, Newfoundland Screech Rum. And the reason I've chosen this is, so my family on my mum's side are from Newfoundland. Oh, uh, which is a little island on the east coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. And when you visit Newfoundland, you have to go through a process called being screeched in. <laughs> and being screeched in involves drinking a shot of screech rum, mm-hmm. eating a cube of what they call new steak, which is spam essentially, yeah. and kissing a cod. <laughs> um, and once you've done those three things and recited a little poem you've been screeched in and you're an honorary Newfoundlander.
0: So a nicer version of the ceremony to become a member of the Bullingdon Club then.
2: Exactly, Mm. that sort of thing. A sort of, like the uh, British identity test, but, you know, with booze. (laughs) It's great. And um, it represents really the whole of, this is my mum's, my mum is one of nine children Mm. and I have 40-something first cousins. It's a big old family. And a lot of them live in Newfoundland. Most of them live here. But I thought growing up that everybody's family was full of musicians and had big parties. (laughs) And and I didn't realise that my family was quite unique in that they're performers. I'm the quiet one. I'm the sort of (laughs) reserved one. And I'm the only one who doesn't really sing or, or play a musical instrument. But the rest of my family do. And they get together and the guitars come out and they jam. And they're just fun and Their sort of currency of talking to each other in my mum's family is jokes. It's making each other laugh. (laughs) And that's definitely where, you know, I got my sort of comedy roots are in my mum's family, my Newfoundland family and here. So I just wanted something in the time capsule to sort of encompass all of that and nothing better than a bottle of Screech rum.
0: Absolutely. Screech rum. I quite fancy some now. Isn't (laughs) Newfoundland though... When English people make jokes about people who are not very bright, traditionally they make (laughs) jokes about Irish people. I mean, completely unfair. Yeah. My father used to tell an Irish joke and I liked it because it sort of turned the thing on its head, which was a girl said, would you like to paint me nude? And he said, is it all right if I keep my socks on? (laughs) And she said, why? He said, so I can have somewhere to stick my brushes. (laughs) But is that not the case for people who live in Newfoundland? Aren't they the people who traditionally are the source of those sort of jokes?
2: Absolutely. To other Canadians, if you say, Oh, my mum's family are new feast, they go, Oh god. <laughs> um Yeah. They live on the rock, then the new feast. It's a mad place, Newfoundland, in the most beautiful way. It's it's the size of England and Wales, but there's only half a million people live there. And it is beautiful and because it's a very ruggedy coastline so it's all bays and just beautiful little bays mm. and things and um, I went to the little village where my granddad was brought up and it's a little place called Ship Harbour and it's called Ship Harbour interestingly because it's where Roosevelt and Churchill signed the NATO agreement on the ship in that bay oh so there's a little little fat for him. yeah
0: see we're not just funny we're educational as well
2: When you're not laughing, you're learning. That's what I say. And I went there with my fella and my cousin Dot as well. And we went into this shop and in Ship Harbour, this little village where my granddad's from, has a population of about 200 people. And in those 200 people, there are two surnames. (laughs) And those surnames are Griffiths and Griffin. (laughs) So I think it's fair to say the Gene pool. More of a puddle then. Yes. And um, my grandfather's name was Griffiths. That's my mum's maiden name. And we went, we went into the local store and I got chatting to a guy in there. I've sort of telling him about my granddad. And I said, so I think that makes us cousins. And he just looked at me and he went, we're all cousins
0: here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. I- yep. That's where I am. <laughs> and you sort of walk around Ship Harbour and I was like, oh, they all look a bit like us. Ah. I was like walking through a hall of mirrors. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> there's a fat me and there's a thin me. But I, I love it there. It's, and it's one of the, they really pride themselves on their hospitality in Newfoundland. And there's the story, I don't know if you know the story of the musical Come From Away.
0: It's the aeroplanes, isn't it?
2: That's right, yeah. So there's a big international airport in Newfoundland because before planes could make it all the way across the Atlantic, that would be a refuelling stop. Mm. So they had this big international airport and, of course, all the planes were grounded in 9 So suddenly all these thousands of people were marooned in Newfoundland and the Newfoundlanders, being Newfoundlanders, took them all in, fed them, had parties, screeched them all in <laughs> and the people had such a good time that they set up like a trust fund for the children of Gander, of this city in Newfoundland, paying for their education. So they have a college fund now. Wow, wonderful. The people from those planes set up for the kids in that community because of how well they sort of treated them when they were Um, stranded. So it's a really lovely story. But they are like that. They'll just take anyone in and they just want to feed you. I mean, we always put on weight when we go there, sort (laughs) of come back. And it's all... All the food is sort of salt and fat and things because their winters are so harsh. You know, it's mm. all, they're all built to take it, but we go there and eat it and I sort of come home two stone heavier.
0: But with a bottle of Screech Rum.
2: But with a bottle of Screech Rum, absolutely. Yeah, it's such a great place and it's very Irish influenced. In St. John's, in the main city, the main drag, if you like, George Street is just full of Irish bars and the music mm. sounds like Irish music. My granddad, who lived over here, everyone thought was Irish very odd accent but yeah it's very irish it's a great place and people don't really go there
0: no it does sound like a place to visit it's never ever occurred to me that i might go to newfoundland
2: when we go there with our english accents they're not used to hearing english accents there because i think canadians go there on holiday because it's beautiful but other people don't really i think they've had a bit of tourism boost from the whole come from away thing Mm. i think that helped a bit and it's such a beautiful place as well and yeah i love it there just lots of beautiful little villages and it's gorgeous. I really recommend it as a holiday destination. I'm, I'm putting it on the map, Newfoundland. Although in the winters, it's, um yeah, don't go in the winter.
0: <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs>
2: my grandmother, she, so my granddad came here during the war. He was with the Newfoundland Regiment and met my grandma and they got married during the war here. Mm. And then after the war, they went to Newfoundland and she went back on the Queen Margaret, on the not the Queen Margaret, the Queen Mary rather, the cruise liner, which was being used as a troop ship. Mm. So she went back on that with all the troops going back and she was eight months pregnant on that voyage. (laughs) So she had an awful time. And this was in 1946, I think this was. And they arrive in Nova Scotia and then she has to get on another rickety little boat to Newfoundland and it's winter and she's a girl from Kent, (laughs) you know, and of course it's in 1946 in winter in Newfoundland. She's eight months pregnant And, yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock for my grandmother, I think. Yeah,
0: what have I done?
2: What have I done? You know, and when, like, when she went to labour, they had to dig through the snow to get her to the hospital. And so in the end, they came back to England. She just got really homesick. She was there for a few years. I think I had a couple of her kids there. Mm. And then, yeah, just couldn't deal with the winters
0: at all. Back to Maidstone.
2: Well, Swanley, even worse. Swanley? But, yeah.
0: Well, screech rum. You sort of go, well, I think I know what this is going to taste like if it's called screech rum.
2: (laughs) i don't think i've ever drunk it when i've been sober to start with (laughs) i don't think i have
0: (laughs) brilliant well that's safely inside your time capsule lovely lovely so that's your second item in there safely what's number three okay i hope you're enjoying the podcast so far uh we're going to take a short ad break now but we'll be back in a jiffy It's not a good idea, was it, getting in a jiffy bag? Anyway, before it gets embarrassing, let's return to Angela Barnes and the things she wants to preserve in her time capsule.
2: Okay, number three is... It sounds like it's going to get a bit slushy here, and it isn't. Okay. But it's my engagement ring Mm -hmm. I'm putting in. So I'm hopefully getting married in September... Uh, I say hopefully because of, you know, COVID and everything, who knows at the minute, but that's the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And my engagement ring, I'm showing it to you on the Zoom there. It's a bit unusual in that it's a square of concrete. I don't know if you can see that. So I don't really do dainty jewellery, but I love concrete. I love brutalist architecture and I have an obsession with nuclear bunkers. (laughs) And in fact, you're looking at my wall here. You can probably see there's a cross-section of two nuclear bunkers on my yes. framed on my wall there. <laughs> and it's just, I always say to people, I'm not a communist, but I really like the look. <laughs> like I love those sort of Soviet concrete structures and things. So my fella, when he proposed, he got me a concrete engagement ring.
0: Fantastic.
2: So I love that it sort of represents sort of my love of all those things, but also my relationship as well. You know, mm. with um, we've been together seven years now, but we're getting married this year. It's a lot going on in that little ring.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You must be furious when the wall went down in Berlin.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what are they
0: doing? You
2: vandals. <laughs> it's funny, because I do a history podcast with John O'Farrell. I know. And I take the mic out of him quite a lot because he's got an uh, authentic piece of the Berlin Wall. And mm. I always say to him, well, how do you know it's authentic? You know, like, <laughs> if everyone who said they had an authentic piece of the Berlin Wall actually did, there would have been a lot more Berlin Wall than <laughs> there was.
0: You think there's a whole industry then of people <laughs> knocking concrete to pieces, then spray painting one side of it Put
2: a bit of graffiti on done (laughs) (laughs) the berlin wall actually came down on my 13th birthday i remember it because i was learning german at school and my german teacher obviously was telling us all about what was happening as it was happening
0: Mm. and
2: uh, yeah 9th of november 1989 was my 13th birthday
0: what a brilliant way to remember something. You could really fool people into the fact that you were brilliant at dates, couldn't you? Just go, well, you know, I remember all sorts of dates, like uh, Berlin Wall, 9th of November.
2: 9th yeah.
0: uh, I won't bother with any others, but you know, I've got them all there somewhere in the back of my head. So uh, would you like to live in a nuclear bunker?
2: No. No. Uh, I'm having my hen doing one, interestingly. In um <laughs> genuinely true. In Dundee. There's uh so it's the Royal Observer Corps headquarters in Dundee. My friend Gavin is the manager of it. And it's um it's got dormitories in there, it's got it's quite a big underground bunker. Mm. And um yeah, so we're going up there for a weekend in July, me and some girlfriends, and we're gonna Hang out in a nuclear bunker for the weekend.
0: (laughs) Well, why not? Let's hope it's not perfect timing. That's all I can say. Exactly. For the sake of the rest of us.
2: It's funny, I've got a WhatsApp group with my friends that are coming on the Hindu. And uh, we were making all the arrangements and my friend said, oh, it's going to be a blast. I said, well, if it is, we're in the right place.
0: (laughs) It's fine. I have seen nuclear bunkers for sale, though. Mm. I saw one advertised quite recently. Yeah. And it was huge. Yeah. It had loads of rooms, but all underground. So Mm. all without any light.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the Cold War ones are the ones I'm sort of a bit nerdy about and there were. 1,500 of them in this country. Wow. But most of them are very small, what they call Royal Observer Corps posts, so little three-man bunkers. But then you have the massive ones are the ones that would have been called regional seats of government. So in the event of a nuclear war, in the Cold War, the... um, I mean, I won't nerd on about this too much because I couldn't No, no, go on, I like it. The the government would disband into 12 regions and there would be an elected commission, not elected, sorry, non-elected commissioner appointed for each region. And each region had its own command bunker. There's one in Essex called Kelvedon Hatch, which you can go and visit. And there's one in Cheshire called Hack Green that you can go visit. And one in Fife in Scotland, Anstruther. I mean, these ones are huge, really massive, Mm -hmm. like sleep. 400 people. You know, the idea being that in the event of nuclear war, this is where you would sort of try and restart society from. Luckily, we never needed them, but not yet. Anyway.
0: (laughs) It's a fairly optimistic view of a nuclear war, isn't it? Give it a couple of weeks and we'll get going again.
2: Well, I think in the 50s, when these were starting to be built, you know, you were looking at sort of bombs that were Hiroshima scale or twice that. Now you're looking at you know it's just pointless even trying to survive a nuclear blast with the weapons that exist now. Mm. um And I think you ask anyone that sort of owned these bunkers. I talked to my friend Gavin about it and said, you know, well, at least you've got that if the worst does happen. You know, you own a bunker. And he was like, if the worst happened, I'm running towards ground zero. I don't want to live my days out in there. I think I'd rather be a goner than uh, survive. Yeah, I don't want to be a nuclear holocaust survivor.
0: Although I slightly suspect that you're not telling us this, but that ring, you are nuclear girl. (laughs) (laughs) With a blast, you just hold the ring towards the explosion. And it would just, rah, you'd battle against it, but no, you'd... Damn ring.
2: it, he's on to me. I thought ah. I'd been so covert and subtle. Ah.
0: <laughs> you've had this power and you've just never had the chance to use it.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, well then, that ring is oh. important for all of us, important for mankind.
2: Absolutely, yes. Yeah,
0: and awesome. I have to say, it's beautiful. It's really Thank beautiful. You.
2: Yes, I really love it.
0: Okay, we'll put it <laughs> safely in the time capsule for you then.
2: Wonderful.
0: So, number four.
2: Number four, okay. Number four is a seven-inch single of, and I've, I, I was going to dig it out and show it so I could show it to you, but it's in the loft and I haven't gone up there. But it's <laughs> um, Isn't She Lovely, which is the, it was a Stevie Wonder song, but it was covered by a man called Dave Parton in Britain in the seventies. I don't know who Dave Parton was, no. but I've got the single because my dad bought it on the day I was born. Oh. And um, cause it's a song about a newborn baby girl. And the story goes that, um, so I was born prematurely and he got the call that I was on my way early. Mm. So he got in his car and as he was driving to the hospital, this song came on the radio and so he stopped at a Woolworths and bought it because he was like, well, there's a 50-50 chance it's going to be a girl.
0: So, <laughs> so he bought
2: the single from Woolworths and then went up to when i was born and um and i've still got it uh, so that was 1976
0: oh how beautiful
2: yeah and it's really my dad's no longer with us my dad died in 2008 mm. um and he died before i started doing stand up and comedies. so all the stuff i do on radio 4 and everything that i used to listen to with my dad he never got to see me do that oh. which is you know it's why it'll always be tinged with sadness all the stuff that I get to do now. is always tinged a little bit with sadness. And
0: was he encouraging you to do that?
2: Very much so. So Ah. he was, so what happened with me? I loved comedy, but I just never thought it was something I could do, you know? And I didn't do my first open spot until after my dad, it was because my dad died, really, that I went, you know, life's short. And so I was 33 when I did my first gig. Mm. But um, my dad was, uh, he just loved comedy. And I used to run a comedy night, just in a room above a pub in Brighton where I live because just because I loved comedy and I loved watching live comedy and he used to come every week to it. And he used to say, you know, why don't you get up and have a go? And I used to Mm. do things like I used to be in an Amdram group and do bits and bobs of, you know, that sort of thing, but I'd never done any proper performing. And go, why don't you ever go? I was like, don't be stupid. I can't. You can't just get up and do it, Dad. So stupid." You know? <laughs> and then when he died, I was like, "Oh, do you know what? You can just get up and do it. You can, yeah. and you should. You know." And um, I actually, I did a stand-up comedy course. I did the Jill Edwards course at Comedia.
0: Comedia, the same as Sean Walsh.
2: Same course that Sean Walsh did, exactly. Mm. Yes, I did. Um, quite a few. Uh, Jimmy Carr did that course, and yeah. Simon Evans did it. Um, yeah, quite a few comics have done it because I just felt I needed to sort of, I didn't also because I booked comedians for comedy nights, I knew a lot of them. So I didn't want to get up in front of them and be shit. (laughs) I "I need to work out if I can do this first. So I did the course Yeah. and that, yes, that was 2009. I did the course and then I did my first open spot properly in 2010. So yeah, it's been a bit of a mad sort of, Ten years, really, um,
0: and straight in as best newcomer.
2: Well, sort of, yeah, fairly quickly. Which yeah. was that was the kind of moment where it's like, oh, maybe this can. I was still working full time then, you know, and and I was like, oh, maybe maybe this can be my job. Maybe mm.
0: I and it is.
2: Yeah, the rest, as they say, <laughs> <It is. laughs> and I still have to pinch myself. I still can't quite believe that I get away with it, Mike. But. You know, all the while they keep giving me work, I'll keep taking it.
0: <laughs> I'm going to go and do that course of the Comedia.
2: Yeah, do it. It's great. <laughs>
0: just, it's, what a hit rate, though. Yeah. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. I mean, she's brilliant. Jill, I love Jill Edwards. She's, um, what she does in the because people say, you know, can courses teach you to be a stand-up comic? And I don't know, they can't teach everyone to be. I think you need to have it in you. Yeah. But I think what they can do is iron out. Some bad habits early on. Yeah. You know, and it's just little things like, you know, learning how to stand on a stage. Because when you go and watch an open mic night, you'll see people are fiddling with a mic cable and they're nervous and they won't look you in the eye. And, they're, you know, all those little tricks into how to look confident and look like a performer.
0: It's stagecraft, really.
2: Yeah, exactly. That. And also just little, she does sort of writing exercises and things just to get you started. Because when you first sit down to write comedy, you're like, oh, I've got the whole world I can write about. Where do I start? You know, and she gives you this, these little exercises, just things to get you going. i say it's like going to an art class. You know, you can't be Picasso until you've learnt the basics. Mm. You know, you can't just go and... Re- so what she gives you is the tool. She teaches you the basics of joke writing and stagecraft, and then you do with that what you want to do with that.
0: Yes. So your first one, you sat down, a, a newfie goes into a bar. No, nah, yeah. nah, start again, start again. <laughs> I have enormous admiration for people who take that risk and do stand on that stage for the first time and just start talking to a group of people and think, you know, I hope you find this funny. I think it's quite funny.
2: People think it's a brave thing. And I always say, I think it's the opposite of brave. So I once was emceeing a gig in a rugby club or something. When you're emceeing, you know, you chat to the audience a bit. And I was chatting to a guy in the front row who was a paramedic. And uh, we were having a little chat. And in the break, he said, oh, can I buy you a drink? And he bought me a drink and he said, you're so brave. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> no. You're a paramedic. You turn up to accidents. I'm not the brave one in this. <laughs> you're like, I'm a show-off is what I am. Mm-hmm. You're brave. Because I'm quite an anxious person in life. I think people are surprised by that. I think people often think that comedians are sort of full of supreme self-confidence because you'd have to be. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think it's the opposite in a way because... I know that when I'm on a stage with a microphone in my hand, it's always my turn to talk. I'm not talking over anyone. I'm not having to worry about the sort of social niceties and all of that. You know, it's just like, I can just stand there, do what I've got to do and I feel safer there than I do say, you know, in a pub with people I've not met before or um, at a party talking to someone new or whatever. I find Mm. that much more nerve wracking than standing on a stage with a microphone. It's nervous the first time you do it, obviously, and it takes a while to get, but once you sort of get over that, I find it's my sort of happy place now. (laughs) (laughs) It's where I feel most me, I think.
0: When I've seen it, particularly playing a small room, where you think, "Ah, that joke's worth more than that. Mm. That response was, you know, minimal. Come on now, Mm. make an effort. (laughs) I am the sort of person you should have in an audience. If ever I go to a stand-up thing, people always say, you mate, you can come again, I'm paying for you to come again. (laughs) <laughs> if I just laugh and I laugh loudly. You, you are know?
2: the dream. Because some people, bless them, they don't laugh loudly. They're enjoying themselves, but they just don't make a noise, which is no good to us. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, good to us at all. <laughs> oh. I do think comedians and performers make good audiences because we we know what it's like to be up there. I know when we, like I say, we're getting married in September and my fellow's best man, is quite nervous because he's got to do a speech and obviously there'll be quite a lot of comedians there. Yeah. And I'd say to him, don't be nervous about that. They'll be the best audience you could have because they will get it and they will laugh at anything that sounds like it might be a joke. Yeah. Because they will know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my God, this bloke doesn't even do it professionally and he's told something that is reasonably funny.
2: Exactly. That
0: is worth a belly laugh.
2: Exactly. Honestly, don't be put off by the fact there'll be comedians there because he was a bit like, oh, God, I've got to do a speech in front of comics. But, yeah, it's not a stand-up night. It's a wedding. It's fine. (laughs) They're not going to be expecting you to, you know, zing every line. It's going to be fine. And also I told him he's not allowed to be funnier than my speech anyway, so it's
0: fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really lovely, though. Uh, Okay, well, yes, then we only have one more item to put into your time capsule, I'm sad to say.
2: So this is the item that I want to put in that I'm happy to see the back of. Right. Mm. So possibly slightly controversial here, but I would like to put my womb in there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Several reasons. (laughs) Mostly in that I am child free by choice is what I like to call it. Mm -hmm. And I'm now at an age, so I'm nearly 45. So I'm at an age now where people have stopped asking me about whether or not I'm going to have kids I think they mostly assume that I can't have kids, which isn't the truth. Uh, I've just chosen not to. But during my thirties, it drove me insane. This sort of pressure that is on women of a certain age to to be a parent, uh, and and men get the pressure as well, but it's different because they haven't got the clock running down that we've got, you know. Mm. And I'm now at a stage of my life where I've got. Uh, I it's, they call it the perimenopause which is the bit before the menopause, yeah. uh, where I say it's like my re- reproductive system sort of handed its notice in and is just <laughs> coasting till it can retire, you know.
0: Yeah, the perimenopause makes me always think of, you know, in a packet of Rizzlers, you may not know this, but in a packet mm. of Rizzlers, when you get five Rizzlers from the end, it says a, a little card comes out that says there's only five papers left. <laughs> and,
2: <laughs>
0: and that's sort of where you are. only five
2: eggs left. I, you know, not many to go. You know. Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah. I've probably got more hairs on my chin than viable eggs in my womb
0: now. That's why. So,
2: and um, that's the stage of life I'm at. It's really fun, Mike. It's, yeah,
0: I can imagine.
2: I have never had the calling to be a mother. And I know, like, throughout my 30s, people were giving it the, you know, it'll come, it'll come. And I, was like, I don't think it will and it never did and i always say to people i do understand biological urges it's just that mine are for carbs <laughs> and babies are protein based so i've never been interested <laughs> and i just now i sort of am at a point where you know talking to to doctors about it before a friend of mine had real sort of problems and asked if she could have a hysterectomy in her 30s and the doctors absolutely refused mm. because she hadn't had kids and she didn't want kids And they said to her, you know, how can you be sure your family's complete? And she said, I I know my family's complete because I've got a dog. Um, (laughs) That was her answer. But, you know, it's this this idea that women don't know their own minds Mm. until it's too late. And I find that offensive. You know, I knew at 30 that I didn't want kids, but there's this narrative that, you know, one day you'll wake up and you'll have changed your mind.
0: And you came from a large family. You're bound to want one yourself.
2: Exactly, you know. I do think part of it is because my I was 12 when my brother was born. Uh, his name's Philip, but I like to call him Whoops. Um, <laughs> but he um, – I was 12 and I remember really vividly what it was like having a newborn baby in the house. And I'm sure that's why I've never romanticised it. I've never – Sort of because I was old enough to go. This is hell. Yeah. Like, and he was a particularly. He, he, I get on really well with my brother now, and he's the most lovely, placid soul. But my God, he was a nightmare child. Like, just a hyperactive. You know, didn't ever sleep, and it was hell. And I think that's why I've gone. Yeah, I'm not buying into that. No. And it was things like the the sort of repetition of parenthood, the the, the kind of. You know, having to read the same stories over again and uh, all of that stuff just never appealed to me. No, any no, of no. And uh,
0: the whole process of menopause and all those things, they happen to women at very different ages. Some people go into the menopause very young. And quite often they're people who are going oh, no, no, I really wanted children. Yeah. And it's not happened for them. And then other people...
2: It can take so long. And it's such a... I just think if this stuff happened to men, it would have all been sorted out by now. Do you (laughs) You, know what I mean? It would, wouldn't
0: it? There would be a pill. There would
2: be a pill you could take that would just be like, there you go, it's over. Because I think... I mean, menopause has such horrific... Symptoms. Horrific. And of course, we don't talk about it. And, you know, because I mean, it only affects over half the population. Why would we be open and talk about
0: it? You know. (laughs) And of course, if it was happening to men, the men who said, when I'm not going to have children, I'm going to dedicate myself to my career, they would be the heroes. Uh,
2: Absolutely. Whereas we're seen as being some sort of evil witches. (laughs) And I just think, uh, how's that? the selfish act surely it'd be more selfish if I brought a child into the world that I didn't want surely mm. that would be a worse thing to do and this sort of idea as well that because I don't have children and I don't want children of my own that I must hate children <laughs> you know that's a really weird conclusion to come to like I love donkeys I don't want one in my house <laughs> I love playing with my friends kids I love babies I really I love smelling babies I love all of that I've just never wanted one of my own and I I have a dog, and that's taken care of any maternal instincts that I might have had. Well, it
0: means that you've picked up poo.
2: Yeah, tick that box. It's fine. (laughs) And I just would like people to stop asking people whether or not they're going to have kids like it's small talk, because it's not. And actually, I find it – I mean, for me, it was always easy to answer, because – the truth is I don't want kids and that's fine. But if you can't have kids or you desperately do want kids and you can't have kids, how awful to be constantly being asked about when you're going to start a family is if it's anyone else's business. Yeah. You know, if it's something that you're trying to do and it's not happening for you or whatever, I, I can't, cause that's the other thing as well. People think that I've got no sympathy for those people. Of course I have. And I feel guilty that I probably could have had a family and didn't. Um, you know, I said to my friend, I was like, Maybe if I'd thought about it earlier, I could have looked into surrogacy or something, you know. But now, I mean, no one's going to want to put all their eggs in my old basket now, that's for sure. But uh, (laughs) it's cruel. It's cruel. We're one of the few creatures, humans, where women have an end to their fertility that's long before they die. Mm. You know, and it just seems a sort of cruel twist of nature, that. Yes,
0: and then also the other side of it, that once you can't have children, you're sort of in a way regarded as not worth anything now. Mm. You know, it's it's an astonishing I say thing, that isn't
2: it? People look at you like you're um, a waiter in Nando's. Like <laughs> what are you for? Why are you here? <laughs> You've got no purpose anymore. Get out. We just very rarely see in drama or anything representations of couples that are happy not having children didn't want to and i know that's because that's the dramatic tension it's always one of them wants kids and the other one doesn't but i just like to see us represented sometimes because i i live in brighton and it's um i've got lots of friends my age who don't want kids never had kids it's more common than people think if you want children and then that's great and mm. you should be encouraged to if you've got love to give there's kids that need love right
0: yeah but then you must have lots of friends who have children, and I bet they think that you're the naughty auntie.
2: Oh yeah, well it's funny. My my best friend, maid of honour, Kirsten. Her she's got three kids. And one of them's now 16, so he's allowed to watch me on telly now. But the two younger ones, like when I do things like Mock the Week or whatever, because it can get a bit fruity. So they're allowed to watch me, but with the sound off. <laughs> they just like to know that I'm on the telly, but yeah. they don't, <laughs> they're do not they not allowed to listen to what I say yet.
0: <laughs> and when will they be allowed to come and see you live?
2: <laughs> oh, well, I don't know about that. I think The older one's been, actually. They've brought the older one now, so he's been. But the two younger ones, soon, I hope.
0: Brilliant! Yeah, yeah.
2: Their mum's a the primary school teacher, so I think she keeps them in check. But don't worry, they've got Auntie Angie to lead them astray. Don't worry about
0: that. <laughs> well, yes, then I shall take and this. Now sounds like a really weird thing to say. <laughs> I shall, Angie, take your womb.
2: <laughs> You're welcome to it. I have no more use
0: for it. <laughs> and I'm going to tuck it away in a cupboard at the back of the time capsule. We'll all just feel sorry for you. Yeah, it's
2: terribly sad. Isn't it? It's
0: terribly sad. Oh, Angie, it's been really lovely. Thank you so much for giving up your time to do this. It's really nice to talk to you.
2: Total pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. I'm so excited when you asked me to do it because I've been listening to them. (laughs) So, yes, thank you.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule, hosted by me, Mike Fenton-Stevens. My guest was Angela Barnes. If you've not subscribed to My Time Capsule yet, please do, as it really helps us. And don't forget to rate the show on the podcast provider you prefer. We use ACAS, but it's up to you. You may also get the chance to write a short review, which we also really appreciate. To find out what's happening and who our upcoming guests are, you could follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You just search Fenton Stevens or My TC Pod. You can download or stream the theme tune, written by Pass the Peas Music, on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Right, I've been sitting here in front of this mic far too long. Time for some exercise. I'll just put my running shoes on. And, oh, oh, no. No, can't catch them. I do you what, I'll put my normal shoes on. There we go. Oh, they're a bit tight. Yeah, perhaps I should try it with the tongue out. Oh, uh, that part? No. No, that makes no difference at all. Oh, well, perhaps I'll just stay here and listen to another episode of My Time Capsule. Oh, there's a great idea. Yeah, I wonder if anyone will actually fall for that. I mean, it's hardly subliminal, is it? Oh, well, where are my slippers? There we go. so that's what they call them, slippers. Bye.